Church, how are we doing this morning? I noticed uh, there's a few people excited to be here. I'm, I'm glad to hear see that. I noticed uh, there's like a there's a tension in the air uh, amongst you Gator fans here this morning. Um, as your as Kentucky gave you a free win last night, congratulations, enjoy that. Uh, and all seriousness, no, hope you uh, hope you guys had a great Saturday, and we are excited that um, you are here. Uh, to worship with us this morning, to hear from the Word of God, and, and hopefully be encouraged uh, by what God is doing. If you've got a Bible, you can go ahead and open it up to Acts chapter 2. Um, if you haven't been with us for a few weeks, or you have no idea what the book of Acts is, or you're not a Christian, and welcome, we're glad you're here. Uh, we've been giving out these scripture journals uh, as a free gift to you. It's the entire book of Acts, the scriptures on one side, and then you can write and take notes on the right side. So if you want one of these, just raise your hand. we got a couple of guys that have uh, these in their hands and would love to give you one for free. Like I said, it's our free gift to you, and that way you are able to have the word of God right there in front of you and can follow along. Um, so I want to recap just kind of real quickly where we've been the last few weeks and what we've been uh, just studying as a church as we've been spending time studying the book of Acts together. And so um, if, you, if you look at Acts chapter 1, verse 1, what we see is, is that the, the book of Acts is a continuation, as Luke says there, of all that Jesus began to do and teach so what this means is, is that as we study the book of Acts, what we're seeing is that this is the story of Jesus' message and mission continuing to advance uh, throughout the world, but not directly through him anymore, but through the church. But we need to understand that at, really in reality, some 2,000 years later, here we are as Aletheia Church, and there's plenty of other churches here in Gainesville that would, would follow this same line of thinking, that we are just a continuation of what happened all the way back in the book of Acts in Acts chapter 1. That is, this is a continuation of Jesus' message and mission, that we are the continuation of that ourselves. And then if you look at Acts chapter 1, verse 8, you see Jesus right before he ascends into heaven saying this, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And what we said is that verse 8 is the theme for the entire book of Acts, that Jesus gives this command to his disciples saying to them, hey, you will be my witnesses, you will receive power, and here's the plan, you're going to go into Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the end of the earth. And so what we said was is that the power, the purpose, and the plan for the mission of the church is given right there in verse 8 of Acts chapter 1. And after this is given, Jesus ascends into heaven. He kind of just disappears, goes off into the clouds. It's kind of like one of those moments where I just love the Bible so much because they just talk like people fly into the clouds all the time, like it's not a big deal, right? And the two angels show up, and they're like, what are you guys doing here? Like, he's gone, right? And, he, and the angels tell them to return to Jerusalem and wait for the Holy Spirit to come. And so they return to the upper room. They install a new apostle. They wait for the Holy Spirit. And then last week, we saw... What happens when the Holy Spirit arrives? And I'm not going to go into depth on that because Pastor Daniel did a great job last week preaching through that. And you can hop on our YouTube channel and watch that sermon if you missed it last week. But what we saw was is that the, the disciples and those that are in the upper room are filled with the Holy Spirit. And we saw this comparison between being filled with the Spirit and being filled with wine. Right? What happens if you're filled with wine? 
it starts to control you. Well, what happens when you're filled by the Holy Spirit? You start to be controlled by God's Spirit and the things that God wants you to be doing. And we see the culmination of that in verse 11 of Acts chapter 2. Look at what Luke says happens there. Both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongue the mighty works of God. Meaning, you had these men and women speaking languages that they did not know, witnessing to the power and the working of God and what he had done through Jesus Christ. And so here is what I want us to see as we move into the text this morning. When we typically read Acts chapter 1, verse 8, right, that, that power, the purpose, the plan, the things that, that Jesus has laid out for his church, right there in verse 8, we see it as a command. And depending on what church you're a part of, or if you grew up in the church or not, or maybe this is your first experience in the church, you read something like that and you're like, man, these people are crazy. They're just talking about this all the time. They're just doing this. And yet you start feeling like you're getting beat over the head that you need to be participating and doing this all the time. And I, w- and I would say this, we very much view Acts 1-8 as a command that God has given to his church. But if we read that properly, we also need to understand that it is a promise of what God is going to do through his people. If you are really a follower of Jesus here this morning, Acts 1-8 is something that's being done through you and in you and to you, but also through you and by you. Meaning that, that God promises that you will receive the Holy Spirit, you will be his witness, and you will do it in whatever context and place he's placed you in, whether that's Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, all the ends of the earth, if we understand the context. See, Acts is a book about the continuation of Jesus' ministry, but it is also a continuation of seeing God make promises and keep them. And if you read scripture kind of holistically, starting in Genesis and working your way through If there's one theme that I think you consistently see throughout the stories and the book of Scripture, those 66 books of the Bible, what you see is God consistently making promises to his people and then keeping them. For example, God promises Abraham and Sarah a son, and he follows through. Not based upon their own obedience or anything they did, but because God keeps his promises. We see that God promises the kingship of Israel to David, and he keeps that promise. But we also see that to Abraham and David, he made much bigger promises about someone who would come and rescue God's people somewhere down the line, and we see that promise fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And now on this side of Jesus showing up and in his life, death, burial, and resurrection, we see these promises to the church. And guess what, church? God keeps his promises. And if you haven't noticed, the church continues to grow for 2,000 years in the face of persecution, in the face of famine, in the face of war, in in the face of martyrdom. The church has continued to grow Partially because of the faithfulness of God's people, but mostly because God promised that it would happen. And we are a continuation of that promise. And I want to say this. You may be sitting there like, Kevin, why are you talking about this? You know, what, why does this matter? And I would just say this. If we, as the people of God, 
move from simply knowing facts and stories about God and information about him to actually believing and trusting in these promises that God puts into play in his word, it's a game changer. Right, you move from fear to boldness because you know God's gonna come through. You move from doubt in your ability to do ministry or whatever it may be, to confidence because you know God's power and promise behind them. And here is how I know that this is true. Here's how I can confidently stand before you this morning and say, hey, if we understand that Acts is a continuation of the promises of God and that we can rest in those promises as well as his people and as his church, right? here's how I can confidently say that you and I can do things like the one campaign where we have one person that we are praying for and asking God to, to rescue and redeem, right? Here's how I know that God wants to use you because of things like what I see this morning in our text, right? I see, right, what happens to the disciples in the first couple chapters of Acts, and I see them move from fear to boldness. I see them move from doubt to confidence because of the promises of God. Think about this for a moment with me. Just as you're sitting there, if you're familiar with the book of Acts or you've been here the last couple weeks as we've been studying this, think about this for a moment. The Holy Spirit has shown up and these uneducated Galileans step out and after this loud, this loud event in the upper room where the Holy Spirit comes and takes residence inside of them, they begin speaking languages they do not know and witnessing to the glory of God. Now just pause and think about this for a second. What were these people doing some 50 days ago? They were running and hiding. Some 50 days ago, these same men and women were running and hiding, and at least the women showed up to the crucifixion. Right? But they were in, in hiding in fear of what was happening to their leader. And you have this sudden change 50 days later where these uneducated people step out and just start witnessing to the glory of God in languages they don't understand. Now, just to give you some reference, this would be as if I walked into an organic chemistry class on UF's campus and started trying to teach you guys tomorrow morning. There's no way. I barely made it through 100-level chemistry on the second try in college. Thank you. At least a few people want to make fun of me, right? It's okay. I'm an idiot. It's fine. Chemistry's not my thing, right? These Galileans stepping out and speaking these languages they don't know would be like me stepping into U.S. organic chemistry class and teaching it better than the professor that knows it. It doesn't make any sense, right? It doesn't follow logic. And the people that are there, by the way, they know these men and women and that they're doing this, and they're confused, like, what in the world is going on? Like, we know Peter. He was hiding. We know John. He, he doesn't know the language he's speaking right now. Like, we know these people. And so two responses crop up, right? If you read what Pastor Daniel finished with last week, right, in Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 12, look at what he says. And all were amazed and what? Perplexed. Perplexed is a fa fancy word for what the heck is going on here. All were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? Right? So you're going to see that of the people that are standing there, as the disciples are witnessing to the glory of God in tongues that they do not speak, two responses. The first is a group of people that are like, what the heck is going on here? 
Like we, we have no idea what's going on. Then you see a second group, right? Verse 13. But others, mocking, said, they are filled with new, new wine. Now, now again, place yourself, right? If you're, especially if you're a follower of Jesus here this morning, in the shoes of these disciples. 50 days ago, your leader was crucified. He's, he's been resurrected. He's promised to use you. Here you are in your first test of real ministry, standing on these steps, witnessing to the glory of God. You've got some people who are just like, what the heck is going on? And you've got other people mocking you, saying, hey, these guys are drunk. Notice how no one's saying, hey, will you tell me about Jesus? No, they're, they're, not, they're not asking questions about God. They're wondering what's going on in front of them. And they're brought to a crossroads here. Right? They could start worrying about what the doubters are saying, or they can lean into the promise that God gave them back in verse 8 of Acts chapter 1. The, ra- the reality of what they have seen and experienced and what they are currently experiencing or they can fear man. Those are kind of the options. And guys, if you are a follower of Jesus here this morning, this shouldn't be that hard for you to empathize with. Some of you guys have been Christians longer than I have. You've been walking with Jesus for years. You've seen his faithfulness for years. You've seen him do things and rescue people in ways that you wouldn't even begin to imagine. You've seen God pull people out of drug addictions. You've seen God rescue and redeem marriages. You've seen God give purpose to your life and to others. And yet we all, in the midst of having seen that faithfulness over time, if you've been a, a Christian for any length of time, still face the same challenge that the apostles face right here. They are challenged on whether they're going to trust in the promises God has given them or not. And you and I are faced daily with the same challenge. Is God really good and is he worthy to be trusted? Think about what Daniel shared with us last week about the Spirit. And, and, and the evidence of the Spirit. He said, for those that are filled with the Spirit, Scripture seems to teach us three things, right? That one, we are saved, that we have, we have been given life in the Spirit, meaning we are actually in Christ and saved and adopted into the family of God. But he said some other things we would notice and experience were things like victory over sin and boldness to witness to what God has done in our lives and in the lives of others. Meaning that there should be, amongst the people of God, a desire to get the message out about how good God is. And yet most of us sit idly by not saying anything because we're paralyzed by fear. And I believe that we're paralyzed by fear because we don't understand that God has promised he's going to help us do this. We rely way too much on ourselves and not enough on God. The number of times I ask people like, hey, are you discipling somebody? Are you witnessing to anybody? Are you talking to anybody? And I say no, and when I ask why, I I, I don't feel equipped. I I don't feel empowered. I don't feel like I would know what to say. Do you think the disciples knew what the heck they were going to be saying when they stepped out of the upper room? No, they didn't speak the language. Right, it was much less, like, like, it's not like, oh, like, he had a really, really good model of evangelism. No, they didn't know the language, right? They didn't understand. 
And yet God met them in this place because the promised Holy Spirit had come upon them. And if you are a follower of Jesus here this morning, you have the same spirit. The same power that emboldened Peter and the other disciples is there in you. And look, I, I get doubts, guys. Like, I, like I, I, get, I get that. I, I wrestle with them myself, right? Am I really saved? Can I really defeat this sin? If you go all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, right, what did the serpent basically say to Eve? Is God really good? He's, he seems to be withholding something from you. Is God really trustworthy? But I want to encourage you guys, especially in light of thinking through the, the commands and the promises that God has given us that we will be his witnesses the same doubts that you and I faced, Peter faced. Right? Peter confessed Jesus as the Messiah and then doubted him a line later in Scripture. Right? Think, think about this. The same accusations that you and I might hear and believe about ourselves that we're not equipped or ready to do this. Peter heard those same things. The same inadequacy that you and I might feel Right, to be able to live out the power and the purpose and the plan of God as his church, Peter dealt with. Right? Not many of us can sit there and say, hey, yeah, we denied Jesus three times before, before the council. Right? We, we can know that Peter is just like us. And yet look at how Peter faces these doubts and faces these challenging Understanding how God's promise to him and the other disciples in Acts 1.8 emboldens him and empowers him to proclaim the gospel. Right, look, look at verse 14. Because right, what we're going to see this morning, in my opinion, is one of the best sermons in all of Scripture, not preached by Jesus. Right, we're going to see Peter boldly witness to Christ. Like He, he says this, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. Right? He stands up. Men of Judea. Anybody in here ever watched the TV show Friday Night Lights? Raise your hand. Okay, so this, this analogy is only going to play with like three of you, okay? Right, yeah, Eric Taylor, he's the coach of this high school football Texas team, uh, team in Texas, right? And every time he's trying to address his team and get their attention, they're, they're in there, they're acting up and whatever else. Anyone that's ever been around middle schoolers and high schoolers knows how hard it can be to get their attention, right? I, in my infinite wisdom, decided to coach my son's soccer team this fall. It's a bunch of three and four-year-olds. The only way I get their attention and know they're actually listening is to incorporate movement with it. Hey, I want you to jump up and down and hold your hands to know I'm listening. And I've got like four-year-olds like, yeah. You know, jumping around like this, right? Eric Taylor walks into his locker room every time he's trying to get their attention. Y'all listen up. And the room just goes silent. And I imagine Peter stepping out on the steps. You get all these people chit-chatting, like, what's going on? What are these people doing? Like, how, how are they speaking these languages? What's going on? They're drunk. And he just stands up. He says, men of Judea. Silence. Right? As he grabs their attention. And look at what he says. No one's drunk. It's 9 a.m. He's like, look, even if we had been drinking, we haven't had enough time yet. 
right? It's nine o'clock in the morning, right? No one is drunk here. And then look, but what you are seeing is going to have a very reasonable explanation. The actions that you are witnessing of these men and women who are uneducated, who are now speaking languages they could not previously speak, actually has a logical and reasonable answer. Let me tell you why this is happening. Now, think about this. This is 50 days after Jesus' crucifixion. So to openly claim to be one of Jesus' followers is not going to be a popular decision. As Peter addresses these men, he is going to preach to them on on the the truth of who Jesus is, but he's going to do so in a way that I think is super uh, interesting and something we can learn from. As I read Luke's account, I'm encouraged by two things, that this is an incredibly and boldly effective message, but there's no reason why anyone in this room can't do the same thing he does with the same boldness and authority because there's nothing special about Peter. Think about it. What is going to make Peter's sermon so effective here? If you're familiar with this story at all, it's two things. He has the Holy Spirit, and he's emboldened and empowered by this. If you're a Christian here this morning, do you have the Holy Spirit? Raise your hand if you have the Holy Spirit. If you're a Christian, your hand should be up. Right? It comes and takes resonance in you. Okay, so one, you have the same thing as Peter. Two, guess what he does consistently throughout this sermon? Quote scripture. You live in the United States and you have a smartphone. You have a Bible. Meaning you can answer objections and explain things using the word of God the same way that Peter does. He takes the truth of scripture and applies it to what is happening around them to explain to them the much grander story of what God is doing. And so I want you to pay close attention because I am now going to fly through the next like 19 to 20 verses, okay? Like just kind of picking out parts that I want you to see in this sermon, and you can go back through and read it later on your own. But before I read the sermon, I want you to remember this in the back of your mind. As Peter addresses this crowd, what issue or problem is he trying to address in their hearts and minds? What issue or problem is he trying to address in the minds of his audience? Because the reality is this. Everyone on earth is struggling with something. Cancer, depression, brokenness, loneliness. The list could go on and on and on. Think about your one. If you were here a couple weeks ago and you laid somebody's name at the foot of this cross, what... Do you know that person well enough to know what might be the dark places of their heart and the hard things that they're walking through? If not, you need to start there. Because if you start there the way that Peter does, you'll be able to start answering the heart questions about what they're asking about life and why they're here in the first place and why everything around them is so messed up. Right? Think about the question that the crowd's asking. How could these Jesus followers be talking like this boldly, especially considering how their leader was just killed? How could these men and women boldly be talking and witnessing to the glory of God just some 50 days after their leader was killed and doing so in languages they don't understand? 
And Peter is going to answer that in a way that ultimately gives them the answer for all of it, and that's in the gospel. Now, Peter does something here, and this is a popular church word and ministry word, and so I'm going to use it to maybe help you understand. Peter does something as he preaches this sermon called contextualization. Will you throw that definition up on the screen for me? Something we need to understand as the church is that for probably, and in, in, we're guilty of this, but it's not your fault because we're, we're, a lot of us in this room are, are next generation after uh, what the church had been trying to do the previous 50 to 100 years before us. Right, 50 or 60 years ago, it was taught to you and I in the church that if we just learned a very specific and intentional gospel presentation, everyone would come to Christ if we just used that exact message. And it really, really worked on our grandparents and our parents, partially because of how similar the culture was to one another. Guess what? You aren't the same as your grandfather or your grandmother, and neither is your friend that you're witnessing to. And what we're finding is that in Scripture, God gives us a glimpse of how we can be better witnesses to his glory, and it's not copying Billy Graham. It's to do this thing that Peter does here in Acts chapter 2, which is contextualize, right? Contextualization is this. Right? Here's my definition that I stole from like seven other people, so this is my own. Is that how that works? <laughs> Contextualization is not just something that's exclusive to the Bible or to the church, right? Contextualization is simply this. It's to take an idea or a statement or an event that has taken place and then to take that idea and place it within the larger setting of culture or the story or the place to reveal a true and complete meaning of that thing. So I, I racked my brain all week of how I was going to give you an example of contextualization in a way that you might understand. And so I'm going to do it using math, okay? How many of you guys in here have taken basic algebra? Like algebra, algebra one. Okay, most of you guys, good. The rest of you, I don't know what you're doing. Okay, algebra one, right? So something simple, right? Like your teacher walks up on the board and writes 2x plus 10 equals 30, and says, solve for X. Now, how many of you guys, when you were like me, in algebra one for the first time, your teacher walked up there and put that on the board like, what the heck is going on? There's letters and numbers now. Preschool has literally just been destroyed for me. Everything I knew about life is now gone. Right? And if you're like my teacher, you just started explaining how to solve that. And here you have 13-year-old prideful Kevin sitting there being like, this is stupid. I'm never going to need this. Right, Because my teacher didn't do the work of contextualizing how algebra might be applied to daily life. Now let me just ask a question to the guys in the room. Because I, I have an old school assumption that if you go on a date, you're going to pay for your date's meal. Okay, all right. So if you're a guy in the room and you are either married or want to be married one day or just want to get a date, raise your hand. Okay, good. Most of the guys in the room. Good. All right. So, so follow along with me with this example. And by the way, my example that I'm going to give you guys is way simpler than the one my wife, the math teacher, wanted to give you guys. She started like giving me this math problem as an example. I'm like, oh, baby, I don't understand this. Like, it's like compound math here, like interest and fractions on tip. Like, I, I, I'm sorry. We're, let's just bring it back a little bit. 
and put it into simple terms. So here's, here's, here's what I want you to think about. You got, you got, you're going to take your wife on a date or your girlfriend on a date or you ask this really, really cute girl that you've, you've noticed in your hall or your classroom or at work and you've asked her out and by God's grace and mercy, she said yes to you for reasons unknown to any of us. <laughs> and as she has said yes, you're like, all right, hold on, wait a minute. I don't have any money. How am I going to do this? And so you search around and you find $80. So you've got $80. Yeah. Be ready, right? You're not going to McDonald's. You're going on a date. All right, so you're sitting there and you got 80 bucks. And you're like, all right, we're going to go see a movie. And movie tickets are $12 a piece. How much can I spend per plate at our place of dinner before the movie? Anybody know? How much, how much can you spend per plate, right? Each, each movie ticket costs $12. It's sunk cost. You got 80 bucks. How much can you spend per plate? What? 28. Thank you. Yes. You could spend up to $28 per plate evenly. And I understand. Yes. One person could spend 30 and one person could spend 26. I get it. And no, I did not include tip, but you better tip. <laughs> Guys, that's algebra. That's basic algebra, right? And if you bring that into the context of my, if my teacher had said, hey, look, and presented with me that scenario, guess what? I would have probably done that first time because I wanted a date at age 13. I didn't know what to do, but I wanted a date. I might have paid attention, right? And I might have learned algebra a little bit better, understanding hey, how that might fit. Guys, this works in any area of life that if you understand context and explain something more fully, you give a more complete understanding of your idea, concept, or story. Contextualization in ministry is where we try to figure out how the message and hope of the gospel speaks to the person we are trying to witness to. What is their question? What is their problem? What is the longing of their heart? And guess what, guys? The gospel answers that question. I can promise you that. Because the gospel is for every culture every time period, and everything that any human being would ever, would ever face. The gospel can answer those questions. Now look at how Peter does this. Remember the question. How can these people be witnessing with such boldness and speaking this way? Like, what, what is going on? That is their issue right in front of them at this moment. That's all they care about. They're not asking about Jesus. They're just asking, how can this be? How can this be going on in front of us? And so if you look at verses 16 through 21... Right, look at what Peter says. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams, even on my male servants and female servants. In those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor and smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Joel promised to all of us all of us is what Peter's saying. He's like, look, the prophet Joel promised to all of us 
what you are witnessing right now. You're all Jewish, right? So you understood his cultural context, right? Hey, remember when Joel promised back in Joel chapter 2 that one day the Holy Spirit would be poured upon us and you would start seeing crazy stuff happening? This is it. This is what Joel had promised. God will pour out his spirit on flesh. Young will see visions. Old will dream. Servants will prophesy. And God will show signs and wonders. And everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Peter says, Joel predicted and promised what you are witnessing right now would occur one day. But he doesn't stop there. He doesn't just answer their question, right? Look at how he's going to fit it into the larger story of what has been going on. Because he's going to say this. Joel predicted and promised this. And guess what? You and I could do this too. We can answer someone's question, why am I lonely? God designed you for community. Simple, simple question, right? Simple answer. But the greater answer to that question is you're lonely because God designed you for community and your sin has broken and marred relationships and needs to be restored through the love, person, and work of Jesus Christ. And you need to be welcomed into the community that God has created for you, the family, the church, the body of Christ. Right? That's how contextualization works. It's not just answering the question with the simple answer. It's bringing it into the much larger context of what God is doing. And Peter's going to do the same thing here. He says, look, Joel predicted and, and told us that what is happening right now would happen right day, but it would happen because of the Messiah. Right? If you look at verses 22 through 24, he says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Look at what he says. He's like, hear these words, guys. Listen up. Here's how we're able to speak and do the things that you're witnessing right now. Joel told you this was going to happen, right? But it happened because of Jesus. It happened because Jesus of Nazareth, who was attested to by God, which means proven or demonstrated, God proved and demonstrated to you in front of you, Throughout his ministry, that he is the Son of God, through mighty works that you witnessed, was delivered up by crucifixion to lawless men. That did not stop him, though, because God raised him from the dead. So he's helping them to realize two things. Hey, guys, what you are witnessing was prophesied about, and it was prophesied that it would happen because the Messiah came. And guess what? The Messiah did come. It was that guy, Jesus, who God had attested about, and you had killed. Jesus proved he was God's son and was killed, and God raised him from the dead. Now, Peter, because he's Jewish, knows what pushback he's going to get immediately. He anticipates it. He's like, well, okay, I've answered your question, and I've told you why Jesus is the fulfillment of these prophecies, and he, he anticipates their pushback. Wait a minute. Like, how could this be? How could, how could the Messiah have been killed? How, how could that have happened? And so he's going to quote Psalm 16, verse 8 through 11 for them in verses 25 through 28. Look at what he says. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will, excuse me, 
Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. And so he quotes Psalm 16. He says, look, David, our king, told us that Jesus would be resurrected one day, that the coming Messiah would not see corruption. Peter anticipates their hesitation and says, Here, here's, what, here's what David had to say about this, right? That when the Messiah comes, he's going he's gonna to be killed, but he will not see corruption. And guess what? He anticipates another objection, right? He anticipates them saying, well, wait a minute, isn't David talking about himself here? Like, isn't he talking about himself here? And so he's going to answer those questions. And I'm not going to read all this, but here's what happens in verses 29 through 38. Here's what Peter addresses to them, right? It's what Aaron read to us earlier when she was up here reading our scripture for today. David, here's what we know about him. One, he was a prophet. We know that because his psalms are preserved in God's word. We also know that God calls him a man after his own heart. We also know that, that David prophesied about things that would happen in the life of Saul, and we saw them come to pass, which was the test for a prophet. And then we see David talking about these things, and we see him promising this type of stuff about the Messiah. And then, guess what? Here's what we know about David, though. He's dead. He's buried. You can go see his tomb if you want, is what Peter says. We know where it is. You can go see where his grave is at. But David, according to what Peter is saying here, when he is talking here in Psalm chapter 16, verses 8 through 11, is looking forward to the coming Messiah and what the Messiah would do. And then this is what Peter says. Guess what? Peter said this would happen, and guess what? We're all witnesses. We've seen Jesus raised from the dead. If you want, you can go to his tomb, but his body's not there, and we spent 40 days with him after his resurrection. We saw Jesus raised from the dead. And then we watched Jesus ascend into heaven and we have received the Holy Spirit and that is why you see us acting a fool up here in front of you today. Because we have received the power of the Holy Spirit that was promised in Joel chapter two because we have seen and experienced the witness and witnessed the promise that David gave of the Messiah in Psalm 16. And look at what he says. I want to actually read this part. Because he still, he still knows there's going to be some like really, really scholarly Jews sitting there saying, well, wait a minute. You can't guarantee to us that David didn't rise and you can't guarantee what has been said here. Look at what he says. Peter then reads for them, right, Psalm 110 verse 1. Starting, starting in verse 33 of Acts chapter 2, those where I want us to see this. He says, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God. He's talking about Jesus here and his ascension into heaven and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit. We've received the Holy Spirit. Remember I told you that that's what they have experienced. He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. There's the answer to your question. Here's how we're doing what we're doing. Then look what he says. For David did not ascend to the heavens, but he himself says, and he's going to quote David, 
The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Now think about that. I want you to read that closely. The Lord said to who? My Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord, that's God, said to who? My Lord. Well, wait a minute. What do we know about David? When he wrote this, what was he? Not a rhetorical question. What was he? King. King. Okay. Does a king have anyone over top of them and in charge? That's right. He leads the government. So here you have the king of Israel writing and saying, The Lord, God, said to who? His Lord, the Messiah, Jesus. Come sit at my right hand until I make your until I make your enemies your footstool. And why, why isn't Jesus still here? Wait a minute. If Jesus really rose from the dead, why isn't he still here? Because Jesus is doing exactly what God said he would do through David after his resurrection. They would go and remain at the right hand of the Father until his enemies had been made his footstool. And then he says this. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him, that's Jesus, both Lord and Christ, that's Messiah, this Jesus whom you crucified. It's like, hey, listen up. What you're witnessing right in front of here, of you today, is proof that this Jesus who you crucified is the Lord and the promised Messiah. Scripture testifies to it, we testify to it, and the Holy Spirit is testifying to it. You wanted to know why we're speaking this way? We're speaking this way because the Messiah has come to save us. The promise of Joel chapter 2, all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved, that's a reality now. It's come to pass. It's here. You want to know why we're speaking a language we can't speak? Because of God. You want to know why we're witnessing to the glory of Jesus Christ? Because of God. Because his promises have come to pass. What you see is the Holy Spirit in us. Because Jesus came and lived and died and rose again as promised because he is Lord. And guess what? They weren't asking about Jesus. And yet, look at the response of the crowd. Now, when they heard this, they were what? Cut to the heart. Wait a minute, you mean we just killed our Savior? Some of the men there, guys, would have been a part of that crowd that released Barabbas. Remember, Pilate stands before the Israelites and gives them the option of releasing Jesus or Barabbas. And what do they choose? They choose the murderer. Some of those very men were sitting there. Some of those men might have been on the council that wrongly tried Jesus the night of his arrest. And as they sit there, listening to Peter explain to them 
why what is happening is happening. And it's all because Jesus was the promised Messiah. It says that they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? It went from wondering what the heck was going on with these men to what do we do? We denied the Christ. And look at what Peter says to them. And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. It says repent, meaning turn from not trusting that Jesus was who he said he was and believe that he is, that he came and he lived and he died in your place, reconciling you to God the Father. And he says, be baptized. Let me just talk about baptism really quick. Right? Baptism, water baptism, is a physical representation of what has already occurred internally in the life of somebody who is a follower of Jesus. Right here at Aletheia, you know that we don't do anything special about on baptism days other than that we just celebrate. I mean, we use a horse trough to baptize you. Something special about the water, right? There's no cathartic experience other than that you just get to declare what Jesus has already done internally in your life. Peter says, repent and then visibly demonstrate to the world that you trust that Jesus is who he said he was based upon the witness that you're seeing here this morning. Witness to the glory of God. And then I love how Peter ends it. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off. Everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. It's for everybody. You don't need to be Jewish. You guys hear me joke all the time about how my family was in Northern Europe at this time somewhere worshiping Thor. Makes a great Marvel hero, not a great God. And here Peter stands before the Jews and says, what Christ has done is to reconcile the entire world to himself. Repent and be baptized. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. So that those who received his word were baptized. And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Could you imagine that? Just go stand in Turlington Plaza and see 3,000 people come to faith in Christ over a few hours. And yet God did it that day. Because guess what? God promises that it will happen. And maybe you will. Maybe, maybe one of you guys in this room will be like the next Billy Graham. I don't know. And you'll go lead crusades that will have thousands of people attend and, and submit and give their lives to Jesus. And maybe some of you guys are just called to be faithful witnesses to the glory of God at work, to your family, to your neighbors, to your, to, your, to your friends in your classes, to the people you play recreational sports with. I don't, I don't know. But what I do know is that there's nothing different about you if you're a follower of Jesus here this morning than there was with Peter. 
That same Holy Spirit that resides in him resides in you. The same scripture that he used to explain the gospel to those men and women standing there that day, you have access to. And that God just wants to use you. If you're a Christian here this morning and you've been here for a couple weeks, I want you to do something for me really quick. Think about your one. One person you want to see God redeem and rescue. Maybe you wrote it on a card and laid it at the foot of the cross a couple weeks ago. What does God's word say about that person? Even right here in our text, what does God's word say? It says this, For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. I don't care care what they're into. I don't care how far off they are. I don't care how messed up or jacked up their life is. If the Lord is calling them to himself, he will do it. And like Peter, you can be a part of the witness to that. Maybe, maybe what they're struggling with is confusion on the next stage of life. Like, what the heck am I going to do? I'm getting ready to graduate. What am I going to do with my life? What, what, is, what, is, what is God's promise for me? Well, God promises never to leave or forsake you even in the midst of confusion and sinfulness. Maybe they're lonely. Maybe they have no friends and they have the exterior experience of being someone who's really popular or whatever else it is, but on the inside they're lonely and no one really knows them. And guess what? The gospel says that God personally knows us and loves us anyway and that you can be personally known and loved in the church family as well because we all have the same story. We were nothing apart from Jesus. And that's why you can be radically authentic in the church because no matter what you've done or what your past is, everyone else in here has one too and it's all been saved and redeemed by the same person, Jesus. Meet with them. Witness to them. Share with them. The worst thing they can say to you, I don't believe. Yet. Because guess what? I denied my sister who was witnessing to me for months and months and months. And now I'm standing in front of here having had my life radically transformed by the grace of Jesus Christ thanks to the faithful witness of my sister and a few other people. If, you're, if you are here this morning and you're not a Christian, just hear me on this. I, I don't know what you're dealing with today. I don't. Maybe, maybe life's going really well for you. If you would come and talk to me at age 20, at the, at the, at, at the start of my, my sophomore year of college, life's great. Going to a new college, I'm excited about what I'm going to do this year. I'm excited about my future career, and everything's going great. And eight months later, my world was crumbling around me. I was not doing well in school. I was destroying relationships and friendships in the name of having a good time. I was in and out of a relationship that was extremely toxic. I was lost, I was confused, and hurting and also faking it to everyone else on the exterior. You can only run for so long. 
And here's just what I would tell you. As a church, we don't have all the answers. We don't. I couldn't tell you anything about organic chemistry. Can't tell you anything about physics, engineering. We, we just don't have all the answers. Counselors don't have all the answers. Professors don't have all the answers. Government doesn't have all the answers. But here's what I do know. No matter where you're at, Jesus wants to meet you in that space. He wants to meet you in this space because I can tell you that from my own life, lost, hurt, broken, and confused, Jesus met me there. And the deepest and strongest desires of my heart to be loved and to be known and to be able to be authentic and not pushed away the way I had been my entire life up until that point, if someone really knew the real me. It was only in Jesus that that was met. Because the Bible says this in Romans chapter 5, God demonstrates his own love towards you and to me, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That means God saw you at your worst. He saw me at my worst, and he chose to love me anyway by giving the life of his only son so that I might be reconciled to him and adopted into his family. Guys, there is no one on this earth that will love you like that. And by the way, I've seen the way my my wife loves our kids. It's close, but it's still not that good. It's close, but it's not that good. You will never experience that level of love and acceptance and approval until you find it in the place of Jesus Christ. And for those of you who have already tasted and seen and experienced that love, please witness to that love to others. That's the only reason we're here, guys. Otherwise, if we're just here this morning to hear me talk, we're no different than the Rotary Club. By the way, does the Rotary Club still exist? It does, okay. We're no different than the Rotary Club. But we have something the Rotary Club doesn't have. It's the fact that we know the God of the universe died and sent his only son to die for you and for me so that we might be reconciled to the Father. My sin had marred me and made me unlovable. Jesus made me clean. Love that hymn. Sin was a crimson stain, but he washed it white as snow. For those of you guys from Florida, snow is very white. That's what God has done. So I'm going to invite the band back up. We're going to turn on the lights, and we're going to have a time of response here. And during our time of response this morning, guys, here's, here's just what I want you to process through and pray through for me this morning. The first one is this. A- am I really reconciled to God? Do I know a lot of facts about Jesus? Could I maybe even, if I had been on the steps of the temple that morning where the disciples were, would I have been able to quote Joel chapter 2 just like Peter did? 
but yet I would have been on the other side asking questions about why they were able to do what they were doing. Here's what I would encourage you to do. God, where am I this morning? Do I know you? Do I know you intimately? And do I know you and trust you the way that Peter and the other apostles do here? And if I don't, there's no shame in that. Right? I would have told you at age 20 that I was a Christian. Here's how deluded, deluded, delusional I was. I also didn't believe in God, really. And then I met Jesus. And in that encounter with God, my life was changed. So you can just sit there this morning, right? As the band's going to be playing. People are going to be moving around. Just meet with him. Say, Jesus, reveal yourself to me. I want to know you. I want to know that you have came, that you lived and died for me. And then Peter just says this, repent of not believing and confess your belief before him. And as the promise in Joel chapter 2 says, all who call upon the name of Jesus as Lord will be saved. And that's a promise. And then do this. I want you to come up here and I want you to take communion if you're a follower of Jesus. And as you take communion, I want you to rejoice and worship because the bread and the juice represent the flesh and blood of Christ poured out for you so you might be forgiven and loved. The very thing that Peter is witnessing to here. And I want you to go back to your seat and I want you to sing joyfully, but I also want you to do this. Pray for your one. God, give me the boldness to trust in your promises the way that Peter did so that I might witness with the same power and authority and beauty that Peter did there because there's no difference between he and I. There's nothing that he does here in Acts chapter 2 that I can't do. Use me to witness to your glory so that we might see more people radically transformed by the grace of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for your promises and the way that you empower us to witness to what you have done. Ask now, God, that you would use us to see many, many people's lives transformed and saved by the grace of your Son. Lord, I don't want us to grow as a church because we're a place with great community. I don't want us to see us grow as a church because we have great music or dynamic speaking or great teaching. Lord, I want to see us as a church be known as your witnesses in Gainesville. God, if there's one thing that's said about us, may it be said, those people love Jesus. Lord, help us to know that the response to that love might be the very thing that the, that the apostles and disciples faced that morning. Some wondered what the heck was going on why others mocked them. And that's okay. 
because you are worthy for me to be mocked and made fun of. And Lord, if me being mocked and made fun of causes even one person to pass from death to life, God, may it be done. Jesus, you know every hair on every head in this room. Holy Spirit, remind them of that now. And that you want to use them to be your witnesses. Embolden us, Lord, to witness to your glory to your fame and to your renown. And I ask this all in Jesus' name.